Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. You'll notice a theme when we read through Luke 18 this morning. For several chapters now, as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, uh, there's this recurring theme of, of kind of reversing the social order and kind of, you know, the exalted are humble and the humble are exalted. Back in, you know, Luke 14, uh, you know, a guy throws a party, invites all these big wigs, politicians, executives, CEOs, uh, and none of them can come. They all blow them off. And so then he invites the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Luke 15, right? The, old pro- the older son, the younger son, the prodigal son, the, the guy that you think would be honored and exalted, the faithful son who stays home and works hard for his father. He is left outside in the cold. And the guy that you would think would be, you know, cast out and kind of, um, you know, dishonored. He's got a big party thrown in his, his honor. Luke 16, there's the rich man and Lazarus. You would think that the rich man would be the hero of the story, that he would be, you know, the, the, you know, tons of money, elevated status. He goes to hell. And then the poor man who like literally can't afford even food to eat. Dogs are wild wolves and dogs are coming by and licking and eating his own body during this life. And he goes to heaven to be with God. Luke 17, uh, lepers are cleansed and not just are lepers cleansed, uh, which in and of itself is remarkable given the, the social status of lepers, but a Samaritan leper uh, is, is particularly kind of held up as the hero of the story. The outcast, even among the outcasts, is kind of, you know, this is the guy that, that has gratefulness in his heart. Luke 18, where we're at now, you've got uh, the persistent widow, a story of, a, of a, an unjust, wicked judge and a poor widow who just continually comes before him asking for mercy, asking for justice, right? Society, you would think, would celebrate the judge and dismiss the widow, the exact opposite. Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Pharisees are kind of the, seen as the most righteous people that there, that there are. Tax collectors are seen as the most wicked, and yet it's a, it's a flip of the script. It's a reversal of what you would expect. Jesus welcomes children, people that society would dismiss, because why would, why would we have, you know, children? Why, why would we give them the time of day? There's nothing that they can, can offer us. Over and over and over, women, children, widows, orphans, cripples, lepers, Poor people, tax collectors, right? These guys are held up as, as heroes, examples that we should emulate. Rich people, high-ranking government officials, these guys are repeatedly left out and seen as cautionary tales. That's kind of a recurring theme in the Gospel of Luke, is this kind of reversal of the social order. The kingdom of God doesn't belong to the, the powerful and the rich. It belongs to the meek and the humble. And Jesus, again today, is driving that point home with the story of the rich ruler. So we're going to read through uh, Luke 18, uh, 18 through 30, and then we're going to take a few minutes and just consider uh, what it means and how we can apply it. Starting in verse 18, it says, and, they, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all of these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he had become very sad for he was extremely rich. 
And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, he said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Well, then then who then can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we thank you that we can read it in our own language, that we can possess a copy of it, that we can gather together to hear from it without fear of persecution or death. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit when we open it together. We ask, Lord, that you would do that this morning. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would change us. We pray that you would grow us and make us more like Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 18. A ruler approaches Jesus and and asks him uh, a question. Uh, You might have heard of this story as uh, you know, referred to as, or kind of uh, titled as the rich young ruler, which is a synthesis of a few different uh, texts. Uh, this parable is, or this story, this account is mentioned in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the three that have the most similarities. John is kind of, he does his own thing. John's, John's an interesting character when you look at the, the Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic Gospels, all have this, this story. Luke mentions that he's a ruler. Uh, Matthew mentions that he's young. And all three of them mention that he's rich. So rich, young ruler, just kind of get that by, by synthesizing the three texts together, which is always, you know, a, an alarming, you know, if you ever see someone who's rich and like a ruler, right, of a nation or of some sort of significant sphere of influence, and he's young, that's, you know, if you're, if you, if, you know, if you're trying to imagine in your head who would be the most well-adjusted, most mature, you know, person who has their head on straight, person who, you know, knows the value of a dollar, person who doesn't walk through life feeling entitled to everything, you probably wouldn't think the person most likely to fit that characteristic, that, that category would be a, a you know, a, a bi- someone who's inherited billions of dollars from their, you know, crown prince, oil tycoon father or something like that. You'd, you'd think, you know, it's someone who's had to work for what they've, what they've achieved and the, maybe they've, they're older, they've, they've got a few decades of experience behind them, so they've kind of seen things. They're, they're more likely to just have a more mature, more uh, seasoned and more well-rounded perspective on reality. This guy is rich, he's young, and he is a ruler. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Jesus, I, I want to live forever, and I want you to tell me how I can live forever. What do I, what do I need to do to make that happen? What, what accomplishments do I need to check off of the list? What possessions do I need to accumulate? What, what do I need to do to earn uh, eternal life? Tell me so that I can get 
started. You can kind of see the error, the, the, the assumption that he's making in his thinking uh, right out of, the, out of the gate, right? That, that, that eternal life is something that can be merited, that it's something that you can get and deserve based on what you've, you've done. Again, this is a rich young ruler, so, so based on his stature, that's, that's kind of like, he has every reason to think that. If eternal life is something that can be earned and can be merited, then if anyone can do it, I can. And Jesus is not stupid, right? Jesus is, is more insightful than any person that's ever walked uh, on the planet. Jesus can see right through this rich young ruler, right into the inner recesses of his heart. He knows what's going on. And so, so Jesus kind of leads the conversation strategically and specifically uh, as he wants it to go because he's trying to address what's going on in this rich young ruler's uh, heart. Right. I mean, if you know, if you were to take an evangelism training seminar at, at in any given church today, they would they probably wouldn't hold this up as the example of how you should deal with an evangelistic. If someone comes up to you and says, you know, what like what must I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me how I can become a, a Christian. It almost seems like Jesus is like uh, putting hurdles in his way, putting obstacles in. You know, if 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 someone comes into a car salesman's office and says, what must I do to, you know, walk out of here with a car today? That guy's going to be like, jump, like, you know, this is, in, this is great. You know, he's going to get all the paperwork and, you know, don't ask any questions. Don't like, just get him to sign on the line that that's dotted. Like, let's do this um, immediately. But, you know, they spend most of their time trying to convince people that they want a car. Here's someone who wants a car. Let's go ahead and close the deal now before he changes his mind. Jesus thinks the exact opposite of that. He's not trying to close the deal while this guy, you know, still is, is interested or anything like, like that. Because Jesus realizes that what's going on in this man's heart is not necessarily a soft-hearted, humble posture of receptivity to the gospel. Rather, what's going on in this man's heart is um, pride and selfishness and self-righteousness. And so he starts by by kind of examining the man's question, right? It seems maybe a little nitpicky, right? Good teacher, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, let's start with the first word of your question and let's just address it. Why, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, right? The, the, he was probably meaning good teacher as, a, as a, a sign of respect, a sign of deference. You're the good teacher. I'm the student. I want to learn from you. Why don't you give me the advice that, I, that I'm seeking for? But Jesus realizes that, that baked into that phrase, good teacher, good teacher is not just a humble kind of sign of deference. I want to learn from you. But, but baked into the phrase, good teacher, is an understanding of what good means and an understanding of what bad means. And it is radically deficient. Right? I'm not, I'm not just uh, some good teacher, I'm not just some good teacher, some spiritual religious guru like, like Gandhi or, or, you know, the Dalai Lama or something like that. I'm not, I'm not yet another enlightened individual that can point you down the path that you need to go for salvation. And, and, and even if I were, uh, again, your understanding of good and bad, like you seem like you're, you're understanding the words good and bad to refer to this continuum that all of humanity kind of rests on, where you've got good people and you've got bad people. There are people better than me and they're good, and people worse than me, and they are, they are bad. It's almost like the, the ruler is coming up to Jesus and saying, you're good, but 
but I'm good too, because that's why I'm asking you uh, how I can, like, bad people don't even care about eternal life, and I do. We're good, you know, this is a good guy. I'm, from one good guy to another, why don't you tell me how I can inherit eternal life? And Jesus says that is a deficient understanding. If your understanding of good and bad, you know, just, just kind of loops in from the worst human being to the best human being, and that's it, then on, like, the pie chart of good and bad, it would be like, that would represent one little fraction of a sliver on the pie chart. And then the vast majority of the pie chart would be left as, as no pun intended, uncharted territory, right? Like the, the vast, like the, the best human being and the worst human being represent like the, the lowest rung on the ladder, right? The one, one tenth of one tenth of one percent of, of, of the morality that there is. And of course, the rest of that continuum uh, is, is God, Jesus is saying, you need to redefine your terms such that uh, it's not that there's good people and bad people. There's good, which is God, and then there's people, which in comparison to God are not good. They are, they are, are bad. Your understanding of, of good is radically deficient. And it's so deficient that you've allowed, you've kind of found some way to maneuver and put yourself into the category of good, which you have no business Uh, being in. So Jesus is starting to steer the conversation toward this man's understanding that Jesus can see in his heart, his understanding that he can, he either already has, or he can, and he will merit his own salvation. And Jesus is trying to steer the conversation there to put his finger on that erroneous assumption and point it out and, and obliterate it. But he continues. He says, all right, well, let's, let's just assume, right? So, so we've started by pointing out your deficient understanding of what good is and what bad is, but let's just take you, let's just follow your premise out to its logical conclusion, right? You seem to understand that you can do something to merit eternal life. You seem to think that you're good. So let's just, let's just uh, follow that line of thinking out. How can you be good enough to merit eternal life on your own, apart from God's grace, apart from any sort of alien righteousness that exists outside of yourself that has to come to you. Here's how you would do it. You know the commandments. Verse 20. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Right? If you can earn your own salvation with your own religious righteousness, which you seem to be under the impression that you can do, let's consider the law of God. Right? Hundreds of laws all throughout, just the first five books of the Bible, I think there's 614 laws kind of sprinkled all throughout the first few books of the Bible. Law after law after law. How to treat God, or how to worship God and love Him and, and see Him rightly. How to treat your neighbor, how to be a godly person. And Jesus says, if you want to merit your own salvation, which you seem to think you can do, then you need to keep the law of God perfectly. You need to keep the law, you need to, you need to obey every single law in the entire Bible perfectly. The letter of the law, the spirit of the law, what you say, what you do, what you think, what you feel. You need to live a life of pristine moral perfection. And that's what you need to do to inherit uh, eternal life. Now, if Jesus came up to you, the sovereign God of the universe who created you, who stands in authority over you, who shines brighter than the sun and just completely exposes every flaw that's in your heart. He knows every bad thing that you've ever done. He sees into the inner recesses of your heart and he says, I'll let you into heaven if you 
are perfect. If you live a perfect life from start to finish, you've never done anything wrong, you've never left anything good and righteous and right undone. You always think of God and how you can love and glorify Him. You always think of your neighbor and how you can love and serve Him. You never have any thoughts that are selfish or self-serving. If you can do that from the moment you're born until the moment you die, I will let you into heaven forever. That's what That was Jesus' offer to you. How would you respond? Would you, you know, well, can we, like, can we grade this maybe on a curve a little bit? Can we, can we have some leniency here? Like, can we get some flexibility? What if I didn't have a good breakfast? What if, you know, there was traffic that day? Is there any chance that I could get a break based on circumstances? I'm not sure that I can, can entirely live up to this perfect standard of moral perfection that you are holding up. That's what I would say. I would start trying to find a loophole because I would know that I would be in need of a loophole. And look how the, the rich young ruler responds. Right? You know the commandments. If you want to inherit eternal life, live a life of perfect morality, start to finish. And he says, all these I have kept from my youth. Like without even a second's hesitation. No, you know, just ready Like he had that answer ready and waiting on the tip of his tongue. No, not even an ounce of humility. No healthy sense of self-doubt. Right? Jesus, like any rational human being would hear these laws listed, ticked off one after the other, and they would be broken and they would be ashamed and they would, would kind of, you know, look away because they would recognize that they had fallen short. And this guy is just, yep, check. Got it. Did that one. Nope. I mean, this is, this is in, this has to be insulting to, because Jesus has done this. Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly from, from childhood on up. Jesus was the perfect, what was the perfect quintessence of what a human should be and how they should act. And here's this guy claiming that he's done what Jesus knows he has not done, what Jesus knows that he has done. And this guy's saying, I've done all of these ever since I was, you know. It's like asking Tom Brady, the best, you know, best quarterback of all time, how to throw a football. And as soon as he starts to, you know, as soon as he like stops what he's doing and starts to explain to you, you know, how to throw a football. And immediately every, everything that he says, you're just like, I already know that. Don't worry about telling me how to play. Like, I know that. I figured this all out. Give, tell me something that I don't know. And he's thinking like, I'm only the best quarterback of all time, and you're, you know, you got cut from junior varsity. Um, what, what do I know about, about how to throw a football? Right? So Jesus is, is, this is insult, like, it's insulting for Jesus to hear, yeah, I've done that. Everything that you've told me to do, I've already been keeping ever since I uh, was a small child. And so Jesus now goes one further and says, all right, well, if you want to continue to walk down this road, that A, you can merit salvation, B, up until this point, you have merited your own salvation, then let's consider, right? We've, we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. Right? Let's consider the first commandment, that there are no other gods except the one true God who is holy. Worship him. Don't worship other idols. Second commandment, but worship God and worship God alone. Let's take the first commandment, the most important commandment there is. Let's take the second most important commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And let's consider comprehensively and exhaustively what it means, what it looks like to actually put these commands into practice. 
Because if you love God more than you love anything else, then you'd be willing to part with anything else in order to glorify and experience oneness and nearness to God. And if you love your neighbor like you love yourself, then you would be happy, you'd be glad to to part with possessions and comforts that you have for yourself to see other people blessed by them. So Jesus says, let's apply the the two most important commandments that there are and see whether or not you actually are keeping them from your youth on up. One thing you lack. Sell everything that you have. Distribute the profits from it to the poor. Do that and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. The guy's been been awfully chatty up until this moment, right? He's got questions. He's got answers. He's got clever retorts, clever responses, right? When Jesus says, here's what you need to do. He says, I've already done it. No, like, you know, like he is, is just ready. Like a, like a, a lawyer who's got, you know, just a bajillion like objections and, and like responses on the ready to kind of spit back at this guy. And all of a sudden he has nothing left to say, sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor and come and follow me. Let's look at the next verse. When he heard these, he doesn't say a word. When he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. So his idol has been, has been exposed, right? Jesus has effectively pointed out, uh, listen, you are telling me that you've kept the law from childhood, and, and even if I were to believe that, let's take a test case. Let's see if you can follow these two basic fundamental laws of loving God and loving your neighbor. Let's see if you're willing to part with your stuff and, and you know, practice self-denial for the sake of glorifying God and the sake of blessing your neighbor. And Jesus is showing this man that he loves money more than he loves God. He loves his possessions more than he loves God. He loves his lifestyle. He loves his comfort. He loves his security. He loves the respect that he gets from others because of all of his possessions more than he loves God. The the thought of, of giving up all of those things repulses him more than the thought of, you know, being, being distanced from from God. He claims to worship God, but Jesus is pointing out the idol that he's really worshiping. It's the idol of wealth. It's the idol of, of self. And Jesus is asking us a similar question today through this text, right? Jesus has a unique capacity to kind of put his finger right on the area of your life, the area of your heart that he sees that is competing with God for your affection, for your allegiance, for your joy, for your delight, for your sacrifice. And he puts his finger right on that part of this man's heart. And through the Holy Spirit, he does the exact same thing in the lives of his people today. Right? One thing you lack Stop committing sexual immorality and come and follow me. Right? Uh, stop being unforget. Right? Right? Stop harboring bitterness against this person who's offended you and come and follow me. Stop demanding that people defer to your preferences on your terms and instead come and follow me. Stop 
pursuing your hobbies. Uh, you know, stop going to great lengths to pursue your hobbies at the expense of your healthy, you know, membership and participation in your local church and come and follow me. Stop worshiping your job and career success so much that you're neglecting your family and your spiritual health and come and follow me. Stop, stop worshiping your political party or your political candidate and instead come and follow me. Jesus has the unique ability to put his finger right on the idols that are lurking in our hearts that are competing with him for our attention and for our affection. And he says, if you love this thing more than you love me, you cannot be my disciple. You might make plenty of money, you might uh, achieve the success or the, the, the rung on the ladder that you want, you might get your way in this particular instance, but you cannot, you'll, you'll do so at the expense of your relationship with God. If you really want to experience eternal life, turn from the idols in your heart and follow Jesus. Jesus isn't necessarily calling everyone, because everyone's idols in their heart are all different, right? So he's not necessarily saying as kind of a one-size-fits-all blanket statement, if you want to be a Christian, you have to sell everything you have. If you have any money in your bank account, that means you're not a, a Christian. But he is saying, you know, whatever the, whatever the thing is in your heart that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your attention now or, or in, when, when you uh, have moments of silence and solitude, if you love that thing more than you love God, if you're willing to disobey God in order to please or, or cater to or achieve that thing, then that's a, a problem. And so, so, yeah, Jesus is not saying you automatically have to sell everything that you own. But if your first response when you read a verse like this is to say, that doesn't apply to me, that, uh, he's not talking to me, I can think of a million reasons why I don't have to do that, Th- maybe he is. <laughs> maybe that is. Maybe this is a verse that we do need to take, to take seriously. If our, if our first response when we read Jesus telling someone else to sell everything you own and give it away and follow me, if our first response is, that's not me and it will never be me, and I'm going to go seek out uh, resources or blog posts or books to convince myself, to alleviate my conscience, to unburden myself so that I don't think that I have to do that, then maybe, maybe Jesus is calling us to do, to do that. Jesus looks at this man as he walks away, sad and dejected because something has been asked of him that he's unwilling to do. And now he's, he's lost his upper hand in the, in the engagement. He walks away and he says, how difficult is it? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Which is convicting since we live in a world that worships wealth. Right? We live in a world that everyone wants to be wealthy, right? No one wants to, no one is, is trying to not be wealthy and instead trying to be impoverished. Everyone wants to be wealthy. Everyone wants to, you know, everyone looks up to and idolizes wealthy people and wants to be like them. And Jesus says, if you take eternity into consideration, th- there might be some, some temporal benefits to being wealthy. But if you take eternity into consideration, it is a liability. Being wealthy is a spiritual, eternal liability that's dangerous for your soul. So it's not wrong to be wealthy, but it's dangerous. It's not wrong to be wealthy. By all means, 
pursue wealth, be wealthy, but know that as you do, you are aspiring to put yourself in a position where it's more difficult rather than less difficult to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. He says, do you want to know how difficult it is for a rich person to be saved? Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, scholars are all over the place on what this verse means because it's kind of weird. So some say, ah, well, the word for camel in Greek uh, sounds a lot like the word for rope or cable. And so, so that it was probably a typo. Uh, and so what Jesus was saying is it's easier for a rope, a big thick rope or a big thick cable to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, than it would be for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or some, some say, uh, no, they're, talking about, they're not talking about a camel. They're talking about like, um, like hair from a camel. So you like take a camel's hair and you braid it into a string or twine or something like that. And it's easier to get that through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to. But neither, those are both a stretch because it doesn't say, that's not what it says. Some guys go even further out of the box. Uh, they say, well, there's a gate. There's a fence around Jerusalem. And... Uh, and if you come during, during like business hours, during the day, you can just walk right in through the front gate, no problem, riding on your camel. You go in, find, find where you're going. But, but like when nightfall came, they would close the front gate, and the only way in and out of Jerusalem was this like back alleyway, and it was called the, the Eye of the Needle. And, and, but that's like a little tiny gate that has like, it's got, you know, like one of those like things when you go into a parking garage, like you can't be any taller than this. And so if you were like, for, a camel couldn't fit through there because camels are big and tall and this thing can only go. So in order for a camel to get through the eye of the needle, it'd have to like get down on its knees and like crawl through on its belly and tuck its head down and like squeeze its way through. And then it could do it. And they're like, see, that is, that's what it means for a camel to go through the eye of the needle is it's like humble. It's on its knees. It's not like walking tall and proud, right? And so that, that seems interesting. Seems like it has some spiritual, uh, you know, application. The problem is it just, they just made it up. So that, we don't see any evidence of that at all. Uh, we didn't, the, the first time we hear that interpretation being mentioned is probably a thousand years after uh, Jesus uh, has, has lived and died and been resurrected and, and ascended. So someone just kind of made that up and thought it was, was interesting and it kind of got some, some traction. More likely, what I think is happening is Jesus is just being... He's just speaking literally, but also like, you know, speaking almost to the point of absurdity. Like a camel is the biggest animal that, that these people have ever seen. And they don't know of any animals that exist bigger than a camel, at least that they've seen with their eyes, right? Maybe like mythological creatures or something like that. But a camel is the biggest thing that they've seen. And the eye of a needle is the smallest space or opening that they could, could envision or imagine in their, in their home. And Jesus says, you want to know how difficult it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven? How, like, you know, just a, a, an excess of, of money and possessions and stuff. Do you want to know how difficult those things make it for a person to get saved? It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, which literally means uh, it is not just difficult, like we see in verse 24, it is just impossible. Which is where we kind of, what we understand from the next two verses, right? The people around him are like, that's absurd. A camel cannot fit through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. So who can possibly be saved? Right? I mean, if, if a rich man cannot go to heaven, 
And we understand rich men to be the most righteous and the most godly and the people who are most likely able to make it to heaven. If a rich man can't be saved, then, then who can be? And Jesus effectively says, no one. No one at all can be saved in and of themselves based on their own works, based on their own merit, based on what they deserve. No one can. It is impossible with man, but it is possible with God. So it's not just, it, it's, so what, what Jesus is not saying in verse 24 is it's difficult for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, meaning, well, if you're wealthy, it's difficult, and if you're poor, it's easy. So just be poor, and then it's an easy downhill road into the kingdom of God, whereas if you're wealthy, it's an uphill, arduous climb. He's effectively, he's not saying it's difficult for wealthy people people and easy for poor people he's saying it is impossible for both wealthy people and poor people like it it is not possible to merit your salvation regardless of who you are what you've done what you have in your hands unless you've lived a perfectly moral life and glorified god perfectly with everything you've ever done and loved your neighbor perfectly with everything you've ever done Unless that's you, then your salvation is not just difficult, your salvation is impossible. You cannot do it. But, even though your salvation is impossible with you, your salvation is possible with God. Because God, God... God's sovereignty extends far past your own. God's righteousness extends far past your own. And so if God wants to save his people, despite the fact that they have made themselves completely and utterly unsavable, God can still save them out of that. God can still leave his throne in heaven and become a human being and walk this earth in the person of Jesus Christ for decade after decade after decade. And he can live a perfect life that he called you to live. And then at the culmination of that life, he can die a sacrificial death that was meant for you. Jesus can satisfy the wrath of God that would have taken an eternity to pour out on you. Jesus can exhaust that completely in just a matter of hours on the cross. And if you trust in Jesus, you might not be able to achieve your salvation because that's impossible, but you can receive your salvation because with what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter kind of is listening in, right? He's like, all right, well, Jesus has called this guy to leave his home and follow him in radical, costly discipleship. And he's promised that if he does, there will be an eternal reward waiting for him. There will be eternal life in heaven waiting for him. And he's kind of thinking, I, you know, this is convenient, like, this is a convenient little conversation I've witnessed here because we, I have, we have left our homes and we have followed you. Right? Jesus, I know that you just told this guy to follow you in costly discipleship, but newsflash, I'm doing that. Uh, right? right? Following you involves making sacrifices. I am currently making them. So, so, uh, why would anyone follow you on this costly journey of discipleship? What's waiting for them at the end of it? I'd like to know because I'm, I think I'm on a trajectory headed down that, that path. And Jesus says to Peter and to the rest that are listening, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, all right, Peter, I get it. Like, relax. You know, like the kid who, you know, the kid who did his homework and is just like really excited to like have the teacher recognize the fact that he did his homework and give him a gold star. I get it. I get that you're following me. I get that that following me means denying yourself. Right? I get that following me means that you have to love God more than you love any other thing and that all of those idols that you worshipped before coming to me, you have to give them all up. I get that following me is costly. Peter, I get that you are uh, doing that. I get that you are currently walking in costly self-denial to be my disciple. I get it. Let me just put put your mind at ease, Peter. Let me assure you that Following Jesus is costly, but it's worth it. You might have to rid yourself of all of your idols. You might have to forego all of the benefits that you would otherwise enjoy if you had those idols. You might have to, you know, live a life where you don't even accumulate those idols in the first place but you will get something far better, right? Choosing to worship and follow Jesus instead of worshiping and following the things of this world will be costly, at times painful, but you'll get something far better. Because as you're worshiping idols, right, it's just a continual treadmill of uh, the idols make demands and they make promises and they make demands and they make promises. And if you meet those demands, uh, then they, they withhold those promises from you. There's always a carrot that's kind of hanging out a little bit further in, ahead of you. There's a law of diminishing returns where the more money you get, the more money that you want. The more pleasure that you get, the more pleasure that you want. And so you're continually striving and continually trying to achieve what the idols are demanding of you and you're never getting the satisfaction and fulfillment that they are promising you and what do you get if if instead of worshiping those idols and chasing after them if instead you worship jesus and you follow him in costly discipleship what do you get instead of what the idols are promising and failing to deliver you get you get god you get god himself christianity is not some religion that holds up some arbitrary thing some mansion in the sky some like thing like if you Follow God, you'll get this thing and it will be great. Christianity uh, says if you trust in Christ, Jesus is not offering you some thing. He's offering you himself. He's offering you a relationship with himself. He's offering you communion with himself. Jesus is inviting you into a relationship wherein he will speak to you through his word. And he will speak, and you can speak back to him through prayer. Jesus has invited you into a fellowship of, of people, right? A covenant community where you, where you gather with believers and you remember the gospel together and you affirm and celebrate the gospel together and you profess your faith to one another and you affirm one another's professions of faith so that you can have assurance of salvation and confidence of knowing where you'll spend eternity. You have to give up a lot to be a Christian. You have to give up a lot. 
You have to give up sin. You have to give up all of the temporal pleasures that sin promises. You have to stop worshiping all of those idols that you once loved more than you loved God. But, but in return for giving all of that up, you get something far better. You get God Himself. You get to be reconciled to the God who made you. You get to live a new life in relationship with the God that you were created to know. Not stuff, not money, not possessions. The promise of the gospel is that you get God. You give up everything that the world offers and in return you get God. Now in this life and forever in the age to come, right? Trust in Christ. He will forgive your sin. He will reconcile you to the Father. You can live with Him under His rule forever and ever. That's what Jesus promises His people, right? You, you cannot merit your salvation. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough. You can't be spiritual enough. To even try is, is impossible. But yet, it can be achieved, or, or that which cannot be achieved can be received through the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. And if you listen to the Holy Spirit, He will point out the idols that are lurking in your heart. He'll convict you of sin so that you can repent and turn from it and follow Him. And as He does, it will be costly and it will be difficult, but it will be worth it because you get God forever. And there's no better promise in the world than that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's a privilege to know you. It's a privilege to get to be in a relationship with you. We acknowledge, Lord, that we could never earn our salvation. We could never merit our salvation. We have not kept the law. We cannot keep the law. Salvation in and of ourselves is impossible. And yet, uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can be saved through Christ. Through his death and his resurrection. And we trust in him and we hold fast to him. And we pray that you would help us to follow you in costly discipleship so that we can experience the superior pleasure of your eternal reward. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.